You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Some people talk about selling to senior level decision makers, making calls, and selling based on value. Other people talk about process tools and measurement of data, systems thinking, analyzing causes and effects. But not very many people talk about how these things can be brought together to motivate people and create wealth for everyone. Today, I'm delighted to have a kindred spirit who I've known for several years, Christian Maurer, a consultant in France. Christian, welcome here. Really, really excited about our conversation today. Thank you for having me. Well, so this is going to be really, really fun. Now, a couple of preparation notes here. Christian and I are talking on a recorded line, and he has the, we have the best audio quality we can get, but something is amiss in it. And so I've asked Christian, and, and Christian has a slight accent, although he's an excellent English speaker, to my ear anyway, some of the stuff is, seems to have been a little hard to understand. So we're going to kind of overcompensate. I've asked him to, to speak especially slowly, and I may even interrupt and re-enunciate or, or confirm that I understand what he's saying. And we're not doing that because, it, we're just doing it because we think there's a, an issue in the audio quality. So I apologize for that in advance, but this, I promise you, is going to be worth paying attention to. As we begin here, Christian, could you tell us like 30 seconds of uh, your background and you know what kinds of things did you do and what are you doing now? Thank you. Well, I started out as an electrical engineer. I have a degree from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. And then uh, I went into engineering in the sense of product manager and project manager. And then I got into uh, selling uh, very complex systems. And from there, uh, my career took me then more into the corporate world where I was the director of strategic planning for a whole corporation. That's where I came to France. And then after a while, I had enough of the corporate life and I was headhunted by a little boutique consultancy specialized. Okay. Who is this again? Boutique. I'm sorry, who you were headhunted by? By a little boutique consultancy. Okay. And this boutique consultancy was specialized on sales trainings and sales consulting. And so I started a second career as a sales trainer and sales consultant. And this little private firm then was garbled up by a large CRM company, which okay. was garbled up by a very large software company. And at the end, the software company thought that we were a very interesting special team, but we would as right more if we would be taken private so we got a private investor okay uh, so, so hang sorry. on a second i'm yeah. hearing <laughs> i hope it's okay if i do this but i'm suspecting it was target account selling was purchased by siba was purchased by oracle is that right you got it <laughs> okay go right. ahead, go ahead. <laughs> you got it spot on right because <laughs> i worked and with impacts corporation i was i was a competitor when i was a sales trainer with impacts corporation i was a competitor to target account selling yeah. And one of the guys who, who founded Target Account Selling started out his sales training career at Impacts working for Dave Matlow. So anyway, oh, small yeah. world. So go ahead. <laughs> small world. Small world. So then you also know how the story then ended. 
that we, we became the task group for the private investors. Today, this company still exists. It's called Altify. But after about a year or two, I found out that probably there was only one person who should think in, in this company, and that was CEO. So I started to become uh, working on my own. But I continued in the world of sales consultancy and sales training. And then a little later, I was approached by two universities in Germany if I would take some courses and postgraduate level. So uh, I teach now uh, graduate courses for master classes. Okay, very good, very good. And so now we get to the, the fun, fun part. And in our conversations over uh, several years, I've learned about Christian that he has made he made some of the same observations I did as a salesperson, sales manager, sales trainer. And what we observed in being in those environments was that there was something amiss, something funny, odd, not right about the way that we were being managed, about the decisions that our sales department heads, sales vice presidents, sales and marketing executives and CEOs were making in regard to resources and people and, and how to run things. And there was something wrong. And Christian saw some similar things. So let's start there. Christian, what are some of the things that you saw during your time in sales that led you to start saying, what, what, what's going on here? Why is this wrong? Yeah. Uh, you certainly know uh, the, the old saying, uh, to have more feet on the street will make more sales. To have right? more feet, yeah, on the street will make more sales. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. The only problem with that is that there is the law of diminished return on effort. Mm -hmm. right? So if you have a territory which is saturated, if you put a second salesman in there, the only thing you do is that you have two salesmen who can no longer make quota because there's not enough potential. Right. So you saw that happen, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that was always what was told. And then afterwards, people wondered why quota wasn't there. Another one, which is very funny, is the must-win deal. Cool. Uh, uh, you, you know, today with CRM systems, if there's a big fish in the system, that goes up to the VP of sales, maybe even higher. And guess what? It's declared a must-win deal. Now, things are not sold. Things are bought. Now, if you want to force to buy before it's ready, the only way that maybe has a chance doing it is you lower your price. Right. right? So if you lower your price, guess what happens to the quota of your salesperson? <laughs> It goes up. So so you discount your way out of making your quota. Not only that, yeah. you rob the company of profitability. Yeah. Or take it another way, you know, sales managers going in at the last moment as the rebate uncle, discounting deals, right? right. And in, in sales management trainings, I sometimes made a little thing and said, okay, you have four deals and you discount by 20%. Now, if you still want to make quota, you need to have a fifth deal, don't you? And oh, yeah. you just, you get people staring at you like I'm from moon. <laughs> oh, yes. 
Oh, it brings back so many memories. Then there's the sales contest. I, I remember I was selling business forms. What a humble product, but a complicated one, all kinds of details. And I was just working. I mean, it's right out of college, a couple of years, working 60 hours a week, trying to succeed, learn how to sell. And I did okay sometimes, but it I, sometimes I didn't do okay. And of course, then I was in trouble. So they did a sales contest. And, and, and this was all around the country. There's a couple of hundred salespeople. I was one of this business forms company. And I actually, after six months, wow, I did really great. They gave me a barbecue grill. I got a new gold watch. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things I won as we went through these milestones. And I got through that and I looked at it and said, now, wait a second. Last year, I was working just as hard and uh, I won some and I lost some, but I didn't get a barbecue grill or this expensive watch. This year, they had the sales contest. Um, my numbers are, you know, basically similar, but I got, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars worth of gifts. What gives? I didn't change my behavior. Just got something out of it. The whole sales contest made no sense to me whatsoever. But the VPs and the branch managers were all saying, what a great thing that was. <laughs> you know, you know the expression SPIF, S-P-I-F? The SPIF, special yes, SPIF. Yeah, yeah, special incentive for the field. Yeah, right? Special incentive for the field. It's, yeah. it's like sales context, exactly the same thing, because there are many sales managers who have no, not really understood yet that you cannot manage a sales force with so-called motivation, motivational factor with T-shirt contests and I got, God knows what, and, and having the ranking. I've, I've heard actually somebody building an, an application for your smartphones that people could ring the bell when they won the deal. They could ring a bell on the smartphone when they got oh, it. Yeah. And, and, and they're sitting so, in the same room. <laughs> and, and, and so everybody who, who was in the group uh, got that ringing of the bell. And that was sold very well. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so nutty. And this is discussed at length in some circles of the operational excellence industry. Edwards Deming, for example, is famous for saying, for pointing out that external motivation is has severe limitations to it. When you try to motivate people by giving them bonuses or giving them quotas or telling them something, making conditions around their work that they don't have control over, that backfires. And yet in sales, it is built around this idea of commissions. And salespeople are money motivated. They're coin operated. And, and so, wow. I mean, it, and it's, 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 I think that there's some elements of truth there in, to a certain extent. But the vast majority of this, and in, in from what I have seen, is is the, the failures, the errors in thought, and errors in assumptions that external motivations can work. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I have a, a similar uh, story from Daniel Pink. Daniel um, Pink. Oh, he's Pink, yeah. author of that. What was the name of his book? Drive is one of his books, and uh, Selling is, is Human. 
Spelling is human, okay. Yeah, the last one he wrote, and he actually did a TED talk about this whole extrinsic motivation. He's a researcher, a free author on extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And uh, in that TED talk, you have to Google that. And the things he tells about there is absolutely mind-boggling. And his quintessence is to say, well, what science knows, practice ignores. It's scientifically known. Ah, okay. Excellent. Excellent. So Daniel Pink, there's a TED talk about, excuse me, motivation, and where he shows that these ideas, these concepts about external motivation are scientifically wrong. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay, we'll find that and include it in the notes uh, of our show here for the audience. And yet, that is something that still, it's taught in business schools. It's just taken as you know, the lay of the land. That's just how things work in sales and marketing, and you can't challenge that sort of thing very easily. Well, there is still uh, some light through the tunnel, just for the anecdote. Okay. Because when, when uh, Daniel Pink wrote his first book about, uh, I think it's called Drive. Drive, D-R-I-V-E, uh, yeah. okay. And uh, that book, I think, was published in 2009, something like this. Mm-hmm. And then the whole incentive compensation industry uh, got really troubled because they they started to worry about their future. And so there is a group around Andy Zoltner, ZS Consulting, I think they're called, and they were also advocates of incentive compensation. They have written a big book about that. And now, uh, about two years ago, a new book came out where they really... Uh, rethink the whole thing and they start to accept that probably incentive compensation, external uh, motivation, extrinsic motivation is not the way to go. They they start to put into practice and and promote uh, hybrid systems and and, uh, ideas which uh, about five, six years ago didn't exist yet. But it took them about eight years to recover from that shock from drive until they uh, really resought their copy uh, and got it into uh, a different direction. Well, and the thing that's so amazing about this is that it, that's just one area, incentive compensation, right? You have whole other areas of management that, that people just take it for granted. A, a senior executive who I dearly love and had worked with for a, a long time as a, as a was a client of mine, was very much a believer in the idea of stretch goals. Just put out a big, hairy, audacious goal and go for it, right? And he believed that that was a constructive thing that could be used regularly in organizations in order to drive improvement. And wow, man, (laughs) I've been there. And it drives burnout, that's for sure. It drives frustration and fear. Yeah, and and what does Deming say? Fear causes errors. Fear causes errors, indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely does. Now, you you look at the history of businesses, and originally, the uh, the old adage, Ricardo, I think, one of the early economists, production creates demand, right? If you can produce something that people want, then they'll buy for it. You, You generate revenue that way. 
to the original, after the Industrial Revolution, right, the application of scientific mindset to commerce, they started, you know, Adam Smith's famous story of the pin factory. Well, they figured out how to make pins way, way more of higher volume, lower costs than ever before. He was making money. And so the, the whole focus of management was how do we make this production enterprise? How do we make it produce more? Mm-hmm. And gradually, uh, so, so, so scientific principles, you can see it happening, right? You can count the, the inventory and the raw material and you can measure the quality. And, and so the scientific principles were readily applicable in sales. And when you were making a ton of the stuff, you could saturate your local market, but you knew that there was demand in other places. You got to get it sold over there, right? So now comes the distribution problem. And so as an example, I love to, to tell the story in the United States, as the interstate highway system was built and developed, they would put billboards out on the highway. All the billboards would have to do is state that something was available, you know, <laughs> a real cream, right? Or the product they were selling and, and they would start selling in those events. They're making people aware of it, right? And companies would if they were going to have, they can make it in Massachusetts, but if they were going to be selling it all around the country, they would need to have little stockpiles of inventory in all those major cities to service the demand. That's a gigantic capital investment. So rather than do that, they signed up distributors and the distributors would invest their money to hold it locally, right? And fulfill the demand and thereby putting up a wall between the CEO of the manufacturing company and the end users in the market because he didn't get to see them anymore, didn't care as long as the distributors were buying. And so these enterprises would grow with this mindset. And then they start realizing after a while, the market saturated. They don't realize that. They just realize sales aren't growing anymore. So what do they do? Sign another distribution channel. And another distribution channel. And another distribution channel. (laughs) Then you have all this conflict going on and people pulling their hair out and nobody's taking any kind of scientific approach to the sales and marketing. You know, it actually is a very fundamental question. What's the purpose of an enterprise? Mm. Right? And I actually uh, love Peter Drucker's definition, which says the purpose of an enterprise is to have customers. Peter Drucker's statement, yeah, the purpose of an enterprise is to have customers trade. Oh, I love that. I remember hearing that before, but that is, yeah, think about that. Yeah, that's, you see, and and from from that moment on, if you take that as your mantra, uh, then you are actually in the idea that if you want to do an enterprise which is customer-oriented, you have to think outside in and not like historically inside out. You know, where you start from the production and you want to get this production somewhere else. But you start, what could the customer need? And then you build something that the customer can need. So you think everything from the customer's perspective. And I never thought about it before. When did he write that? That was back in the 60s or 70s? When did he write that? Yeah, Yeah, I I don't know. Probably even in his first book on management, probably in the Fifties. I, I just know uh, have his citations found it in one of the citation catalogs, but I don't know exactly in which book he wrote it. But it's probably in the fifties, sixties. Well, as I understand it, he was in. If I'm not mistaken, he was in the same faculty as Edwards Deming, 
and the systems thinking guy, Russell Ackoff. They knew each other. They talked every day for many years, as I understand it. That I do not know. I, the only thing I know is that uh, Peter Drucker actually is an Austrian, born Austrian, and he was then uh, migrated to the United States. He was a journalist, and he refused three calls to be a professor at Harvard. He preferred to be a consultant to all the big CEOs of his, of his time. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And today, today, I'll just make this observation. I, I, first of all, your involvement with the universities there in Europe, excellent. Those universities sorely need someone like yourself who has a commitment to reason, right? Evidence and data, scientific thinking, and also understands commerce and people and how businesses work. And I, I'm sorry to say my exposure to universities here in the U.S. was just anything but respect for that. There was no respect for that stuff. There was some respect for the scientific approach in the sciences and in the math department. I ended up majoring in math because of that. But when it came to the humanities and when it came to the business courses, it was just I had a terrible – it was awful. Yeah. Awful experience. <laughs> and, and so I said, stayed away, stayed as far away from the universities as I can – and I've run across people, and, and this maybe is a topic for another time, I've run across people who are management consultants who, when you scratch the surface of their thinking, they're not rational or logical or systemic in their thinking at all. And yet they are actively promoting, you know, lean in sales or or <laughs> Six Sigma's not so much, but there's just a lot of mess out there. You know? mm-hmm. Of, of science and, and bringing it to sales and marketing management. And so bring this back to what we started out with. We saw this as people in the field, in the grip of a corporation, in the grip of having to be productive and bring in revenue and having these, I don't know, tribal knowledge, these, these policies that would come out that, okay, at first it sounds right, but when you put it in practice, it's obvious, it's not working. It's doing the opposite of what they want to accomplish. And why is that happening? And so it makes salespeople's lives much more difficult. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. And you know, in the end, what it, uh, what it leads to is that salespeople show a behavior which actually makes you to hate salespeople. I mean, yeah. every sales class that I do starts with, Please raise your hand if you like salespeople. I'm usually, the only, I'm usually the only one raising the hand. And then I ask those students, and you want to study sales now? Give me a break. I don't understand you. Okay? And then we, from that, we, we, we discuss how did these behaviors from a wrong perspective happening. And I tell them, if you want to be successful in complex B2B sales, you have to get not even touch those behaviors, you have to take another approach so that you are not touched by this reputation. But be aware, you always will have to fight against this very big fear or or disgust even against salespeople. Yes. Well, I tell you what, this has been a great conversation. We've only picked the scab a little bit, as they say here in the U.S. There's a, there's a pain out there among salespeople, but among executives, too, who are responsible for making their companies grow. And it's way more difficult than it ought to be. 
And why is that the case? And I'm convinced from what I know about you that many of the things you teach in your courses would be beneficial and valuable. And so if you're willing and and interested in that, why don't we set up a follow-up visit and we can talk about some of these basic things that you present in your courses and share more examples of uh, the experiences you had in the corporations uh, that helped you to learn what these principles are. Would that be all right? That would be fine with me. All right, super. Well, we will look forward to that. And Christian, I want to thank you very much. If, if someone wants to get a hold of you, learn more about what you've done or about your courses, how can they get a hold of you? Well, I think the easiest is if you just go to LinkedIn and Google me on LinkedIn. Uh, there you have all the things. I also have a blog, which is called The Ultimate Sales Executive Resource. The Ultimate Sales Executive Executive Resource. Okay, well, I'll put those two links also in the show notes here. And uh, thank you very much. This has been great. I know that there's a bunch of people out there, you know, (laughs) we've gotten their attention here because they're in the grip of this kind of frustration. You know, we'll pick this up and we'll talk about what some of those learnings and principles are the next time we talk. So, uh, Christian, thank you very much. Thank you. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.